Isn't it a glorious opportunity to gather together this morning? I know that it was already made mention of the announcements, but what a great time we had yesterday for those that were able to assemble and to gather for the, for the fall fellowship period we had. A delightful and fun time for everybody that was there. Not only the food, but the youngsters, the ball games, the other activities. It was just a fine time of fellowship with those who truly are those that love the Word of God and love the Lord. But we come together this morning, not for the same purpose that we came together yesterday, far higher, far richer purpose to worship God in truth and in spirit. We've just sung a number of songs about heaven. I think they've all been very prompting, very compelling, very telling songs. I'm always thankful for the men that lead us in singing. They do such a great job of selecting songs that go along with the lesson. And certainly that's happened again today. Description of heaven. As you begin to look at some of the features, you and I are going to devote a few moments this morning. I'd like to begin it like this. As we think about heaven for the next, oh, several minutes, isn't it a thrilling topic? Isn't it a genuinely exciting subject? When you and I think about so many of the problems and issues that confront us here, we dream about a place where there shall be none of that. That genuine thrill maybe is prompted by a number of these things. You and I know the Bible uses the word heaven in a bit of a variety of ways. It does refer to the birds flying in the heaven. It does refer to the stars existent in the heaven. Genesis chapter 1, verses 15, and also verse 20. But the Bible is also very clear in that it makes reference to the third heaven, the very place of the abode of God. In fact, that reference to the third heaven perhaps calls to mind the immediate fact that in 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul himself was called up to this place. Haven't you often wondered what he saw? Haven't you often wondered what he heard? I'm sure we all have. We probably can't read those verses in 2 Corinthians 12 without wondering, Paul, what did you see? And yet the fact of the matter is that whatever it was that Paul heard on that occasion, he was quickly told it's not lawful for you to utter it. We're just going to have to wait and ask him. We're just going to have to wait to see it for ourselves, I suppose. But the fact is, although on that occasion we are not given the fullness of the detail of what it was Paul was privileged to hear when we arrive at the book of Revelation, we have a glorious descriptive scene of heaven. I would invite you for the next few moments to journey with me through Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And you may want to have your Bible open to that because we'll be referring to a number of its verses. And as we look at the contents of those two chapters, we will have set before our very eyes the marvelous matter of the place called heaven. As we come to the bottom of that slide, what then about the description of heaven? We'll start there in the opening verse of chapter 21 of Revelation. Let's do it like this. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. One of the very first descriptions given to you and me is the newness of this place. Now keep in mind that doesn't mean new in the sense that it was just recently created. The place called the marvelous and beautiful abode of heaven is in fact just as eternal as anything else in regard to the fact that the place of God's abode. But what John highlights for us, the newness, is the fact that humans will get to be there. 
it'll be a new experience for any of us that have the marvelous and glorious blessing to be able to enter there. It'll be new for us. It won't be new for God. It won't be new, of course, for the sublime armies of hosts of angels that have been privileged to be there. Some of the other descriptions read like this. John is quick to tell us the first heaven and the first earth are no more. That first heaven in regard to the cosmos and also in regard to the nature of the place where the birds fly, that won't be anymore. Peter writes for us in 2 Peter 3 verse 10, the beauty, the beauty spot of that ending character of time. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. Notice he said, the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The current place where the birds fly, the current cosmos with all of its stars and the other things in it, it shall be burned up, he says. The first heaven won't be anymore. No wonder John's describing for us thus a new place of abode. For he can't dwell here despite the teaching of some religious folks in our world. This earth won't be here then. Not only that, you may notice the statement here that John makes is a recollection of some Old Testament statements. In Isaiah chapters 65 and 66, the last two chapters of that book, God revealed through the prophet Isaiah the fact that he looked for a new heaven and a new earth. And John quotes that here and uses it in a marvelous way to refer to that sweet and glorious abode of the faithful. When you and I think about the new heaven and new earth, maybe we end it by noticing verse 5 of this same Revelation 21. There it says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. How many things, Lord? He said, all. Think about how exciting maybe you've been in life. At certain times when something new came your way. Maybe when you were younger, your parents got you a new toy or perhaps a new article of clothing for Christmas or maybe even blessed with a new car or something. Here you and I are given the incredible consideration that there will be a place where all things for you and me will be new. There won't be anything there in terms of oldness of experiences or oldness in terms of difficulties or problems. Point number two. Not only is this a place of newness, notice what is said in the very next verse of Revelation 21. And I, John, saw the holy city. This place is called a holy city. It didn't otherwise refer to anything ungodly. It's holy. He goes on to say, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I suspect as you and I give reflection to the events of a typical marriage, at least the, the occasion of the wedding, isn't it amazing to see the extent to which a bride will prepare herself? She chooses for months to select the right dress. And she gets her bridesmaids all ready and the building is fixed to a T. Everything about the wedding reception, the characteristics of the events of that day are de detailed with exquisite precision. John said, I want to tell you something. This holy city to which I refer, it's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's a prepared place. The Lord Jesus isn't going to hastily throw it together as if it's a plan B arrangement. It's prepared, and therefore it suggests the fact that those who enter there too must prepare themselves. 
Let's highlight that perhaps more like this. When you and I give thought to this description, you may notice in that very verse, first of all it says, the holy city. It goes on to say, New Jerusalem. One of the things that occurs to you and me, no doubt, is there is a physical city of Jerusalem here on planet earth. It has been a centerpiece of the biblical lands ever since really the days of the book of Genesis. It was, of course, the place where David ultimately made his capital, as we read in 2 Samuel chapters 2 and 3. It's a place that occupied the center place of those kings of ancient Israel and Judah. When we come to the New Testament era, we still read about Jerusalem, but not like this. This is New Jerusalem. It's not like that city over there. And aren't you thankful? That city seems often to be beset with wars and strifes and terrorism and difficulty and false religion. This is New Jerusalem. It's prepared just like a bride prepares for the day of her wedding. You'll notice one more thing. Coming down from God out of heaven. Now don't read in that to be something distinct from the place of heaven itself. Notice again what John was told. John, what you see right in the book. Imagine you were in the audience and the screen, the curtain opens, and you see those on the stage and they look up and this beautiful adorned place descends out of heaven and they all begin to grin and smile and they look forward to being able to be there. John said, that's what I saw. The faithful of all the ages look at this place and they just can't wait to be there. Coming down from God out of heaven. Of course, ultimately, they're going to be back there in heaven. But you'll notice he goes on to say this. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. As we noted a moment ago, that preparation, of course, proceeds in both directions. Jesus, on one account, made this statement in John 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Jesus commented on that occasion about the fact He was going to prepare this place. In fact, if you'll hold on to that thought later in the lesson, one of the additional points is going to look at that preparation from the opposite standpoint. For right now, might we notice part three. What next might we comment about the grandeur of this place? Let's just look at the next verse. I would ask you carefully to note verse 4. Revelation 21, 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, Neither sorrow, no crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. One of the additional features that makes heaven such an, an amazing place is what won't be there. Here are some things that will be absent. They will not be present, and you may particularly note, no sorrow, no crying, no pain. No death. I would ask you to quickly just observe some of those verses at the bottom. The human lot, it seems, is surrounded by disappointment and it's surrounded by occasions that bring grief and tears. When Jacob thought that his beloved son Joseph had been slaughtered by animals, grief overwhelmed Jacob and it was difficult for anybody to comfort him. 
you and I can understand that. When we lose loved ones and family members and those that we care so much about, think about the tears that stream down our face. Not only that, in 1 Samuel 1 verse 10, here was Hannah who wanted so much to have a child and she couldn't. What disappointment there comes in life. Sometimes it just doesn't work the way you and I would hope that it would and it doesn't work as ideally as we'd like and it causes a sorrow. There won't be any of that in heaven. There won't be any of that there. Notice he also said in that same verse, there won't be any more pain. I'm sure all of us at some point have experienced pain, whether it be in our back, our neck, our feet, our legs, our heart. The body is very good about informing us about pain. Don't you look forward to a place where there won't be any of that. There won't be any need there for aspirin. There won't be any need there for other kinds of ibuprofen or pain medications. There won't be any pain. Oh, how I look forward to that place. You'll notice in the midst of this, though, there's one more thing he states in that same verse. It says, Neither shall there be any more death. Now, you might pause a moment and appreciate that again, our lot to close our life in this flesh, so long as the Lord doesn't return, is the matter of death. That transition that leads from this life to one after it. And of course, death brings such a cloud of uncertainty for so many people. Philosophers and the wise supposed sages of the ages have often spoken about the nature of death and what may or may not lie on the other side. And most of the time what they write is nonsense. But you and I have before us the certainty and assurance of the God of heaven that there's going to be a place where there is no death. There won't be any more separation. You won't lose the ones you love. And you'll never in fact be separated from the very source of the greatness of positive feeling that you enjoy. Heaven. You may notice in fact in the very next chapter, Revelation 22, again this presentation of the absence of death is highlighted one more time here from the following perspective did you notice what else is in this place notice verse 2 in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life and you notice in that very reference it takes us back to virtually the opening saga of the entire bible genesis chapters 1 2 and 3 where you remember in that garden was the tree of life and Adam and Eve had access to it. They could eat of that tree and never would they physically die. After they sinned, God forced them to leave the garden and without access to that tree, they both physically died. And so too have you and I as their progeny. But might we notice there's going to come a time when again there shall be access to that glorious tree of life and those who partake thereof will never die. Don't you look forward to that place, this place called heaven? What about point number four? Not only are there some things absent there, but you also notice that there are some behaviors that are absent. There are going to be certain things, certain kinds of activities that just won't occur there. Would you notice this with me? Verse 8, Revelation 21, 8. But the fearful and the unbelieving the abominable, murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. 
In addition to some things absent, notice there are some behaviors that are absent. How often have you been agitated and bothered as you perceive what takes place in the world around us? Raping and murdering and killing. Various and sundry ungodly activities. It just weighs weighs down those that are faithful. Don't you look forward to a place where, notice one more time, verse number 8, the fearful won't be there. You and I are taught in 1 John 4, 19, perfect love casts out fear. Don't you look forward to a place where love is the remaining and the reigning guide. Furthermore, it says the unbelieving. Jesus said you've got to believe to enter heaven, John 8, 21 to 24. So if you don't believe, you're never going to enter that place. You'll notice he says the unbelieving won't be there. Furthermore, the abominable. Now, that's a rather broad term. It has reference to anything that God hates. Any kind of activity, any kind of process, any kind of pursuit that God hates will not be there. Aren't you beginning to grin wildly to think then about all the things that won't be there? He goes on to say, murderers, those who have a disrespect for the life that God has made, those who treat it somewhat flippantly, Murders won't be there. Again, those who have not been forgiven of any sin, those who could commit murder, they can be forgiven, but if they haven't been, they're not going to be there. He goes on to say, whoremongers. That's the term for fornication. Anybody guilty of sexual sin won't be there. That's a powerful term, isn't it? Our world seems to be filled with appreciation of wrong understandings of sexuality. God says, I'm here to tell you, there's a place called heaven and those guilty of sexual sin, those guilty of those kind of behaviors won't be there. He goes on to say this, sorcerers and idolaters. I would ask you to think pretty quickly that you and I can summarize some of that by looking to verse 27. Revelation 21, verse 27. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth. Aren't you and I now so wonderfully excited? Anything that defiles, anything that tarnishes, anything that mars will not be found there. This place won't be encumbered with the problems and difficulties that humans seemingly so often bring. As you and I complete number four, let's look furthermore. Because this chapter has more to remind us about this beautiful place called heaven. Point number five. Verse number nine of Revelation 21. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. We noticed earlier in the lesson this morning about this place called heaven that was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. But now we notice that those who are blessed to enter there are described as the Lamb's wife. Note again the reading. Come hither, I will show thee the bride. We're about to see a marriage scene. Now as you and I consider that, you and I know well what's about to do to be described before us. He says, the Lamb's wife. We know who the Lamb is. Jesus Christ is the Lamb. More than once in the Revelation, we read passages like this back in Revelation 5, 
on that occasion, remember the one on the throne had a book in his hand. And we remember so amazingly that there was one who took the book, loosed the seals, and opened the contents. Who was it? The Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus Christ. Revelation 5 verse 12. As you and I think then about the Lamb, we remember John himself, the Baptist, in John 1.29 said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Who is he talking to and about? Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And yet, His bride is here. No wonder as you and I think about the Lamb's wife. We think about this marriage that we're about to witness. We appreciate that verse says, John, come here. I want you to see something. Can you imagine the excitement on the angels' faces? They have been waiting for an eternity to see this. The marriage is about to happen. The Lamb has already come back to heaven a long time ago, but now the bride's about to be here. The bridegroom's been waiting and the moment is now about to arrive. You and I know the New Testament describes on so many occasions that the Lamb's wife, the bride, is the church. That's you and me, my friend. You and me. We are the ones who are now, after the judgment scene, we're going to be here and they're going to be united forevermore, never to be parted. Isn't that what we sometimes say in our marriage ceremonies today? Till death do us part, this man, this woman joined and never to be parted. Here, the lamb and his wife are going to be joined never ever to be parted. For you see, there will be no more death now. As you and I think about heaven seen in that way, we remember in Ephesians 5 verses 22 to 33, the church is described as, as his bride. Point number six. In addition to thinking so far about all of these, notice... This chapter gives us an interesting description of heaven like this. Notice verse number 16. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. You can imagine again as John witnessed this, there was one who measured the length and the breadth and the height of this holy city and found it to be exactly 12,000 furlongs, a perfect cube. Now a furlong is a measure of length that you and I would appreciate 12,000 of them would be 1,500 miles. So if one were to look upon it literally, here is the golden city, 1,500 miles length, width, height. But of course, you and I know Revelation didn't intend that to be taken literally. Rather, it is a figurative description about the absolute perfection of this place. A cube is one of the most perfect of the geometrical shapes, isn't it? And yet you'll notice here, heaven is also the same. That's not the first thing in this chapter that highlights about that. You may notice particularly verse number 18. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like pure glass. Everything in this city is like pure gold. Think about the shininess, the brilliance, the exquisiteness, yea, the perfection thereof. Not only that, you may notice in Revelation 22 verse 1, something else is said about what occurs here. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. How often have you been mesmerized by a clear country stream that the water is so clear you can see to the bottom of that which is there? John says there is a 
river of water, clear as crystal proceeding through this place. As you and I think about heaven, so far the perfection is highlighted about the honor that goes with it. Notice verse 26. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Sometimes men here on earth make honorable things for themselves. Maybe you've seen pictures of the Saudi Arabian king and the kind of exquisiteness. Some of them even have a car that's made of pure gold over there. Think about how much that must cost. That won't hold a candle to the glory of this place. Everything in heaven is like pure gold, clear as crystal. Have you ever thought about gold that's clear? We think of gold as being that beautiful yellow with goldish color. This gold is so exquisitely pure that it's even far purer than gold as you and I would think of it here in our earth. You'll notice in light of all of that, there's more to be said. What else about this place? Point number seven. May I suggest to you the exquisiteness of it is highlighted in verse 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Let's pause right there. It is described as having twelve entrances into this place. Twelve gates, three of them on each of four sides. But these gates weren't made of wood and they weren't made of steel. They were made of pure gold. I'm, so, I'm sorry, they were made of pure pearl. Now, from what you and I know, pearls are something that's made with resistance. A pearl is made by result of opposition. Maybe that highlights something interesting. The entrance into heaven will be by those faithful enough to endure difficulty and hardship to get there. It is said by Jesus, right, straight is the gate and narrow is the way. The straightness thereof is highlighted like this. This place is so fine that the foundations are garnished with the finest of stones. Now, twelve foundations are described, but on each one is listed a particular fine stone to highlight the nature and character of it. You and I build a foundation of cement, cinder blocks. That won't be the case here. When you think about that, notice point number eight. We come to think for a moment about light. Isn't it true that you and I have access now to light? That, of course, is made by physical or chemical means. We turn on a light switch or we light a candle. But you'll notice something amazing is said in one of the verses before us. Would you notice verse number 23? And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. There will be access to light here that is far more abundant, far more powerful, and far purer than any light you and I have ever imagined. And you'll notice there's no, lead, no need for artificial lighting. The Lamb, Jesus the Christ, in the effulgence of His presence, that'll be all the light anybody was ever going to need. You may remember that on the Mount of Transfiguration when He was transfigured before the eyes of those that were about Him. He glistened, the text says, glistering even more so than the sun. I suspect the appearance of the Son of God is going to be somewhat like that again. Oh, what light's going to be present. It is, of course, interesting to notice that in 1 John 1 verses 5 and 6, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. The excitement only heightens. Because as we think about light, you'll notice the Godhead is there. 
How often have you wanted to see God? How often in the recesses of the evening have you longed to see the face of Jesus? And of course, you and I in this flesh cannot do it. In fact, we know God's glory is such that the text of the Bible on several occasions tells us no man has seen God at any time. John 1.18 Simply put, just as Moses petitioned on one occasion, he wanted to see God's glory and God said, if you do, you'll die. That's how great it must be. And yet you and I appreciate that all three members of the Godhead are going to be there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and you and I as the blessed faithful shall be able to be there in their presence. Talk about exciting. In fact, as John sets those things before us here, doesn't it tell us you and I are going to have to be equipped for it. In this flesh, we wouldn't be able to survive. But 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 and following tell us that on the occasion of that great resurrection morning, we shall be fitted with bodies ready for that glorious abode. Now, when we're fit with that, we appreciate that it's going to be an incorruptible body. It'll never more die. No wonder as we come to the close of point number nine. I'm sure you and I can readily think about other ways that that truth is taught in the Bible. In the Old Testament era, they had the tabernacle and the temple. But you'll notice even the high priest wasn't permitted to see the glory and face of God. Remember that the incense smoke clouded that mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. You and I are going to be in the absolute presence of the God of heaven when we get to heaven. We're going to be in their presence. Nothing to veil their glory or our ability to perceive it. We're going to be in the sublime August presence of the God of heaven. At that point, nine descriptions so far of heaven as we come pretty close to the close of our lesson, three more. These will to some extent turn the focus a little slightly to a little bit of a different angle, but also found in these same places in the Word of God. One of the things that so often comes to our mind here is the thought of the needs of our body and the needs of our life being satisfied. We need food and we need water and we need appropriate shelter. And yet also in Revelation, the inspired writer informs us, God's taking care of all that. For every need is supplied. Maybe at this point you and I won't know all what the needs of that spiritual body are going to be. We can rest assured, whatever they are, God's going to supply them. Notice we've already seen reference to a river of water. Is there some kind of water that body's going to need? The tree of life is going to be there. We will have access to it so that we'll never again die. You'll notice there at the top, there's another verse in Revelation that it seems to speak so much about this topic. Would you please notice it's in Revelation 7. Earlier in this book, I'd like to read that in our hearing. Revelation chapter 7, I'll begin reading in verse 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes." 
You notice whatever the needs are, be it hunger, thirst, excessive heat, nothing is going to trouble or bother or harm. Point number 11 is this one. You noticed it in our reading. I'm sure one of the things that you and I might quickly wonder about, so what are we going to be doing for all eternity? Here on earth, we're accustomed to work and we're accustomed to activity. What are we going to be doing for all eternity? The Bible sums it up in two words. It sums it up in that statement, serve Him. You and I will be privileged to be the absolute servant of God, whatever that service entails. Some of it appears to be singing. Some of it appears to be other attributes of worship. But suffice it to say, we're going to serve Him. May I say that that's going to encompass all of our being. There won't be time for anything else. That's how great God is. That's really how great He is. And that service is highlighted in verses like Revelation 14.3, Revelation 15.3, and Revelation 22.3. Service. It is with all that in mind we close our lesson with point number 12. For you see, one more thing is to be noted. We've talked a lot about describing heaven, and I think it's excited all of us. I'm sure it has. But the fact is, in order to get there, faith is absolutely necessary. And that faith is, of course, an obedient thing, and it is absolutely demanded. It's not enough to wish for heaven. We've already learned this morning it's a prepared place, but you and I have to be prepared in order to enjoy it, in order to be granted entrance therein. For if we aren't prepared on that day of judgment, you may remember how often the Master is going to say in words that are so chilling in Matthew 25. Jesus spoke about the scene where they had heard but hadn't obeyed. They were aware of, but hadn't made preparation. And because unprepared, they are thus not allowed to enter this place of heaven. Paul could say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of life, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. Do you love his appearing? Are you genuinely looking forward to heaven? Heaven should be something often resting on our sights because it will be a strong anchor to guide us through this life to realize there's a better place beyond for the faithful. In closing this lesson, Hebrews 5.8 then puts it like this. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Have you obeyed Him today? Maybe as an alien sinner, you now recognize that you currently are not in line for heaven because you have rejected the sacrifice of Christ. We'd be happy to assist you in your initial obedience today. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If, however, you have become a Christian, but this very morning, you know heaven right now for you is just a distant wish. You know that your life isn't as it ought to be. And you know that right now, if the judgment were to happen one minute from now, that heaven would not be your abode. Don't leave this building with that fear hanging over you. Don't you want to go to heaven? Surely we do. 
And if you'd like to make sure certain of your arrangements, let us follow the advice of Peter. Make your calling and election sure. If you need to respond today, why don't you do it while together we stand and while we sing.